Chapter Seven of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Seven. Little Bilstead sits in judgment. I'm so nervous, Jane," fluttered Miss Mary Jell. "Don't be absurd, Mary," retorted Miss Jell. "You ought to show more self-control." But suppose he were to call," whispered Miss Mary. Her eyes round as those of a frightened child. I should faint. I know I should," she added with conviction. "I was so frightened this morning." Miss Jell drew in her lips, but made no remark. The two sisters were seated in their drawing room, awaiting the callers that the third Thursday in the month always brought them. Miss Jell had assumed her usual position opposite the door, whilst her sister had taken a chair near the window. Her natural inclination to watch the callers as they approached, having been rigorously curbed by her more decorous sister, Miss Mary had compromised by sitting as near to the window as she dare, and in such a position as enabled her, when her sister was not looking, to obtain an occasional glimpse of the roadway that ribboned down towards the village. The Mrs. Jell were both small, both grey, and both of unknown age, but whereas Miss Jell was reserved and austere, as befits an elder sister, Miss Mary was sometimes spontaneous and always gentle. They were gentlewomen, and they looked it. They had lived in Little Bilstead all their lives, and were invited to the Grange, a distinction they shared with the vicar, his sister, Colonel Enderby, the doctor, and Mrs. Trespert Green. Somewhere in the dim recesses of the past, a magazine, long since defunct, had accepted a story by Miss Jell. From then onwards she was, by common consent, looked upon as literary, and upon all such matters she was regarded as an authority, and deference paid to her opinion. Never having reached such height, Miss Mary had perforced to accept a more lowly position, not only in the household, but in the social world of Little Bilstead. The Cedars, where the Mrs. Jell had lived all their lives, was a small house with a garden back and front. An estate agent would have described it as standing in its own grounds. As a matter of fact, there was at least a yard and a half of ground either side between the hedge and the house, but nowhere was there to be seen anything dimly resembling a cedar. Not even the oldest inhabitant could remember such a tree rearing its browns and blacks anywhere near the house. How the place had come to be called the cedars, no one knew, and no one seemed to care. The social event of the month in Little Bilstead was the Miss Jell's third Thursdays. About half-past three in the afternoon, Little Bilstead, that is to say, such portion of Little Bilstead as had been socially born, would be seen making its way towards the Cedars, which stood on the rise of the hill at the easternmost end of the village. Colonel Enderby would bring out his tall white felt hat with a black band, winter or summer it made no difference, stab into his tie a horseshoe pin, composed of brilliance, which had been presented to him by an Indian rajah, button on his white spats, and, with gloves and cane clasped jauntily in his left hand, would set forth to pay his respects, as he expressed it, to the Mrs. Jell. Mrs. Spellman would don a new headgear of her own construction, and her passing the window of Rose Cottage would be a signal for Miss Marshall, who for the last half-hour had stood watching behind the curtain to make the plunge. With her would be her father, a retired civil servant, who possessed the soul of an albino and the appetite of a cormorant. During the afternoon, 
Generally, when the last callers were preparing to leave, the vicar would sometimes look in. Social little Bilstead lived for the Miss Jell's third Thursdays, there to discuss and rediscuss all that had happened, and a great deal that had not happened, in the village during the previous month. Others extended hospitality, but it was sporadic. The marshals sometimes indulged in a whist drive. Mrs. Spellman was generally at home by special invitation twice in three months, thus exercising an economy of thirty-three and a third per cent per annum, without being particularly noticeable. Colonel Enderby gave little bachelor teas, whilst the others did their social best for little Bilstead. Still, the Mrs. Jell could claim pride of place. "'Here's Mrs. Spellman,' cried Miss Mary, forgetting in her excitement that she had obtained the information by illicit means. "'How many times have I told you, Mary, not to—' "'She's had the red-tip-dyed magenta,' broke in Miss Mary, unable to restrain herself within the limits of discretion. "'If you insist on looking out of the window, Mary, I shall have the blinds drawn.' announced Miss Jell, who, with hands folded austerely before her, sat awaiting the first peal at the bell. Miss Mary subsided with a little sigh of regret. To her the third Thursdays would have been so much more enjoyable had she been allowed to sit at the window and watch the arrival of the first callers. The little sigh with which she received her sister's remark indicated that this little pleasure had been consigned to the limbo of things that are not to be. Two minutes later, the little bell tinkled to announce the arrival of Mrs. Spellman. This was followed almost immediately by the eruption into the placid atmosphere of the drawing-room of a little woman in a fawn dust-coat. On her head was what had come to be known in Little Bilstead as Mrs. Spellman's talk. Mrs. Spellman possessed certain millinery materials, a wire shape covered with dingy gauze, which in form was not unlike a martello tower, two tips little tufts of feathers raped from some inconspicuous portion of an ostrich, several pieces of gold-coloured bullion lace, and an infinity of odds and ends of black satin and coloured velvets. One of the tips was black and the other coloured. Each was from time to time re-dipped, the coloured tip, like the foliage of a cedar, gradually darkening in shade with the passage of years. Each month Mrs. Spellman produced something new in the way of millinery. Never had she been known to repeat herself. The final result was always too large, giving to it an appearance of top-heaviness which seemed to threaten with entire extinction her small features. "'Oh, Miss Jell, what do you think of it?' she cried. "'He was in the village only this morning. I meant to go down to the post-office to get a money-order for my old nurse. Just as I was leaving the house, Prinnikins knocked over a jug of cream.' Milly was so annoyed. I had to stay and comfort her and remove the cream from Pinny's tail. Wasn't it vexing? But for that I should— "'To whom are you referring, Mrs. Spellman?' inquired Miss Jell, with that touch of coldness in her voice she invariably kept from Mrs. Spellman. As the widow of a tradesman, she had to be kept in her place. "'Oh, haven't you heard?' she continued. "'Alfred Warren has returned. The village is in a state of ferment. I'm sure something terrible will happen, to think that but for dear little Prinny's playfulness I should have seen him this morning. You remember all about the Thurkettle. I don't think we need discuss that, said Miss Jell, with a glance at her sister, as if she had been in her teens. But don't you realize, continued Mrs. Spellman, that we shall be flung into a veritable— Oh, here's Colonel Enderby, she cried, as the door was opened by Ellen, 
the Miss Jell's elderly maid, to admit a tall, spare man with a white, bristling moustache, the eyes of a crawfish, and the jowl of a bloodhound. "'Oh, Colonel Enderby, have you heard?' Mrs. Spellman stopped suddenly. Colonel Enderby had fixed into his right eye the monocle that always dangled from his neck by a piece of broad black ribbon, and froze her as if she had been an untidily clothed recruit. He then turned to Miss Jell and Miss Mary, and proceeded to greet them, with a ceremony suggestive of the days of Thackeray. Finally he turned to Mrs. Spellman and greeted her. "'You know, Colonel, I nearly saw him this morning,' cried Mrs. Spellman. "'If it hadn't been for Prinnikins upsetting a jug of cream and then sit—I mean, putting his tail in it, I should have met him in the village.' "'Met whom in the village?' demanded Colonel Underby. He disliked widows, especially those of what he called damned daily breaders. "'Mr. Warren, you know he's back, don't you?' "'I heard it this morning,' he cried, his moustache bristling even more fiercely. "'If I meet him, it will be my pleasant duty to tell him that he's a scoundrel. I've half a mind to—' Colonel Enderby paused and gazed about him with bellicose intensity. Miss Mary looked up at him admiringly, whilst Mrs. Spellman smirked. "'You soldiers are always so terrible,' she said, whereat Colonel Enderby straightened himself. He had been known in the army as Ramrod Enderby. "'I—' he began, when he was interrupted by the reappearance of the flat-footed Ellen. "'Mr. and Miss Marshall,' she announced, in a voice that seemed several times too small for her. It was Ellen's rule never to announce the first two arrivals— her publicity began with the advent of the third. Miss Jell had striven long and arduously to break her of this habit, but to all her protests Ellen would reply, "'Yes, miss,' and on the very next occasion proceed to do exactly as she had done for the last thirty years. Whilst the marshals were being made welcome, Colonel Enderby proceeded to blow out his cheeks and glare about him, as if accumulating energy for an outburst against the prodigal. His ideas of conversation were those of a monologue, with himself cast for the speaking part. Whilst his daughter was engaged with the Mrs. Jell, Mr. Marshall was taking stock of the sideboard upon which the refreshments were laid out. He was a gaunt man, with the expression of a rabbit and the veracity of an ostrich. A grateful country had bestowed upon him a pension, totally inadequate to his needs, even had his appetite been normal. As it was, his daughter, Amelia— a near-sighted, sandy-haired young woman, whose bust and lower waist measurements seemed somehow to have become confused, found it difficult, even with the aid of tinned foods, to keep expenditure upon bowing terms with income. But for the social instincts of Little Bilstead she would long since have been forced to give up the struggle. But Mr. Marshall was a good forager, and could generally be depended upon to scratch a fairly decent meal at any function to which he was invited. Upon such days Miss Marshall was able to eke out existence with a bread-and-cheese luncheon and a small tin of salmon for dinner. "'I regard it as a scandal,' announced Colonel Enderby, as if he were addressing a squad of defaulters. "'Eh, hey, Marshall?' certainly stammered Mr. Marshall, recalled from an earnest contemplation of a plate of deep-tinted fruit-cake. He had already decided that it should form the foundation of his afternoon meal.' "'Such a dreadful example for the villagers,' remarked Mrs. Spellman, casting up her eyes to the ceiling, as if her thoughts were with the rude forefathers. "'It is certainly very unfortunate,' remarked Miss Jell primly. "'Unfortunate, ma'am,' cried Colonel Enderby. 
It's an outrage. When I was a young man, such a thing would have been impossible. Colonel Enderby was never tired of cataloguing the things that would have been impossible when he was young. That terrible Thurkettle affair! Mrs. Spellman paused at the sight of the frown upon Miss Jell's brows. Miss Mary Jell turned aside and coughed modestly, whilst Miss Marshall blushed. They were interrupted by further callers, and, for the next quarter of an hour, Miss Jell and her sister were kept busy receiving guests and ministering to their needs. As caller after caller arrived, they, in effect, repeated Mrs. Spellman's, "'Oh, Miss Jell, what do you think of it?' and then each proceeded to tell what he or she had heard. Although the prodigal had been back less than twenty-four hours, every one seemed to be possessed of a vast amount of information concerning him. Mr. Williams, a small man with a small voice and a still smaller income, had heard that he had spent the whole of the previous day at the pigeons and had been seen to leave in a state of marked hilarity and with unsteady gait. Mrs. Gainford, who had private means and public meannesses, had been told by her maid that there had been a terrible scene at the Grange, in which the butler had been severely handled by his master, because he refused to give up the key of the wine-cellar. The atmosphere was hot with rumour, and the temperature was further heightened by the increasing excitement. The attendance that afternoon created a record for the Miss Jell's third Thursdays. Even Dr. Crane found time to slip in and out again, saying a few words, nodding his head, and diplomatically avoiding any definite expression of opinion. Dr. Crane's conception of the attitude of the general practitioner was that silence added weight to the few words he spoke. In this he was abetted by the almost bovine placidity of his wife. The excitement seriously interfered with Mr. Marshall's customary meal, and that night Miss Marshall had to reinforce the small tin of salmon with a can of baked beans, she spent a restless night wondering in what direction she could exercise economy to cover the additional expenditure. The entrance of young Eric Stannard, Marjorie Stannard's red-headed and freckled brother, caused a sudden hush to fall upon the company, a tribute alike to the immaturity of his fourteen years and their own curiosity as to whether his sister were coming. Having told Miss Jell that he had arrived by the three-twenty, he proceeded to slay his own social importance by announcing that, Margie's sore she won't be able to come. He then drifted over to the sideboard, taking up a strong strategical position in the neighbourhood of the plate of fruit-cake. Mr. Marshall watched him anxiously. He had fully intended to get back to it again later. At the moment he was engaged upon anchovy sandwiches, constructed out of margarine and bloater paste of a strength capable of disguising anything. The excitement broke out again at the advent of Mrs. Truspitt Green, who, as a second cousin of a baronet, bulked large in the social life of Little Bilstead. "'Oh, Mrs. Truspitt Green!' cried Mrs. Spellman. "'Isn't it dreadful?' In Little Bilstead, no one but Liddy Warren ever dared to omit the Truspitt for Mrs. Green's name. "'I hurt you halfway down the road,' was Mrs. Truspitt Green's uncompromising retort. Rudeness was her poise rudeness and an ostentatious deference to the rulings of the Almighty. To her there was little virtue in being the second cousin of a baronet, unless she could snub the relict of a tradesman. "'If you mean about Mr. Warren's return,' continued Mrs. Truspitt Green presently, "'I have heard.' "'And what do you think of it?' asked Mrs. Spellman, in her eagerness forgetful of the snub she had just received. There was a hush. 
all were anxious to know how the news would strike the second cousin of a baronet. "'Heaven has been very good,' she replied. When any social uncertainty assailed her, Mrs. Trusbett Green invariably saddled Providence with the responsibility. "'That's what I say,' broke in young Stannard, his mouth full of jam turnover, in the making of which Miss Mary Jell was an adept. "'Top hole,' he added, as if to leave no doubt as to the soundness of his theology. Mrs. Trusbett Green took a cup of tea from the tray that Ellen held before her. She was a puffy-faced woman, the blueness of whose complexion some ascribed to bismuth and others to brandy. "'You mean,' queried Miss Jell of Mrs. Trusbett Green, as Ellen extended to her a plate containing the last ham sandwich, "'that the fate of our dear friend, Lady Warren, has made her whole,' murmured Mrs. Trusbett Green, taking a nibble at the sandwich. She was what she herself described as a good churchwoman. "'But think of that scandal!' cried Mrs. Spellman. "'The what?' Mrs. Trusbett Green lowered the sandwich from her thin lips and fixed her fish-like eyes upon Mrs. Spellman's toque. "'The—the—' the... she paused, uncomfortable under the other's scrutiny of her millinery. "'Don't you think it will be very awkward?' she finished lamely. "'If God has so ordained it, so let it be,' was the response. It was not that Mrs. Trusbett Green disliked scandal. She merely objected to its high priestess in Little Bilstead. "'I hear that he denies he is Alfred Warren,' said Mrs. Crane, thickly. "'He says his name is James Smith, and that he has lost his memory,' she added irrelevantly. A sudden silence fell upon the room at this amazing announcement. In her surprise at the effect of her bombshell, Mrs. Crane allowed a piece of viscid pineapple flan to slip from her saucer, and Miss Mary promptly trod on it. For the first time in her self-possessed life, Miss Jell was at a loss, whilst Miss Mary was almost in tears, owing to her ineffectual struggle to remove the slice of pineapple flan from the instep of her right shoe. The tension was relieved by Mr. Marshall giving tongue. At the sight of Eric making for the last jam-tart, he had swallowed a half-masticated mouthful of coconut cake, some of which had, like the girl in the play, taken the wrong turning, so far he had stifled his agony, but it would not be controlled, and he now burst out into a violent fit of coughing, which brought tears to his eyes, and his daughter solicitously to his side. Nature had given to Mr. Marshall the instincts of the cormorant, without making the necessary physical adjustments, with the result that he frequently choked. The real diversion, however, was caused by Colonel Enderby, whose face had turned an apoplectic purple he seemed engaged in an endeavour to emulate the frog and Aesop. "'It's an outrage against decency!' he cried, his moustache bristling like the quills of a porcupine as he glared about him savagely. His explosion seemed to clear the air and loosen tongues, coupled with the fact that Miss Mary had freed her shoe of the clinging pineapple, and that Mr. Marshall had almost recovered, due to the promptness with which his daughter administered all the milk available, upwards of a pint, she was a girl of quick decision, and she knew that milk was rich in proteids. "'He thinks to avoid punishment by denying his identity,' barked the colonel, the young scoundrel. "'In my opinion, he's insane.' "'He thinks to pull wool over our eyes,' cried Mrs. Spellman, whose expressions were sometimes intensely colloquial. Colonel Enderby glared at her. She was stealing his thunder. 
"'If I were to commit a crime,' he said, still glaring at Mrs. Spellman, "'and go away, returning years later, and saying that I was not Colonel Anderby, but had lost my memory, would you believe me?' A murmur passed round the room. Suddenly all saw the depths of wickedness to which Alfred Warren had sunk. "'But perhaps he really is, Mr. Smith,' ventured Miss Mary, timidly. She had always a thought and a word for the underdog. "'Be quiet, Mary,' said Miss Jell severely. "'You forget that Willis and Mrs. Higgs recognized him as well as ourselves. I knew him at once,' she added, as if to leave no loophole for doubt. This was bombshell number two. Their hostess—they always regarded Miss Jell as their hostess—had actually seen and recognized the reprobate. Everybody said something, and each seemed to hurl an excited question at Miss Jell. "'I don't believe it. There are no Dromios in real life,' announced Mrs. Trespit Green, with decision. She was proud of her knowledge of Shakespeare. There was a sudden hush. No one knew what a Dromio actually was, or if it were respectable. "'Would the law exonerate me from responsibility?' demanded Colonel Enderby, determined to recapture the ball of conversation. "'Would it, ma'am?' he demanded of Miss Jell. "'No,' he barked, without waiting for a reply, and that bark caused Mr. Marshall hurriedly to withdraw the hand he had extended towards the last piece of currant cake. Again there was a murmur of approval. Colonel Enderby had once more become the centre of interest, and for the next five minutes he held forth on the iniquity of Alfred Warren in endeavouring to evade responsibility for his past crimes and misdemeanours, by announcing that he was not Alfred Warren, and had lost his memory. "'I shall inform the police,' he announced at length. "'I may even write to the Chief Commissioner at Scotland Yard.' Having beaten Mr. Marshall in a dash for the last cheesecake, which he demolished in two bites, Eric Stannard threw himself into the fray. "'Jolly rotten, I call it,' he said to no one in particular. "'Slicing up a fellow in his ab.' "'You are too young to understand, Eric,' said Mrs. Spellman, a comfortable-looking body in puce and myrtle green. "'He's turned over a new leaf,' was the uncompromising retort. "'Prods always do. That's why they're prods.' "'You mustn't talk about things you don't understand, Eric,' said Miss Jell firmly. There came over young Stannard's generously freckled face a look of obstinacy. "'Anyhow, it isn't fair to slice him up when he isn't here.' "'Is it, Mrs. Crane?' he asked, turning to the doctor's wife. "'Is it what, Eric?' she queried. Mrs. Crane was, as Mrs. Trespit Green put it, fat and stupid. "'Is it fair to cut out a fellow's giz when he isn't here?' "'Really, Eric,' protested Miss Jell, "'you ought not to use such expressions.' "'Sorry, Miss Jell,' he grinned, "'but it slipped out. Anyhow,' he continued, turning to Mrs. Spellman, I'm going to back him up, and so will father. He's a dab at backing also, Rands. As an historian and a fellow of King's, Miles Stannard was noted for his uncompromising championship of the Monmouths and the Perkin Warbucks of history. Well, I must buzz off, said Eric, extending a dubious hand to Miss Jell. There was nothing now to wait for, and he would still be in time for another tea at the Grange. Two minutes later he was making good progress in the direction of home. The run upon the Miss Jell's refreshments that afternoon had been in excess of the supply, owing to the unprecedented number of callers, and, in consequence, Eric and Mr. Marshall had suffered. 
For the next two hours, social little Bilstead discussed the return of Alfred Warren and what it might mean to them and the neighbourhood. All were agreed that it would be impossible to receive him. Yet there was not one there who did not yearn to meet him. End of chapter 7